Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, and these are the movies that changed my life. Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorja, and welcome to IMDb's Movies That Changed My Life, a podcast where your favorite stars break down the films that made them who they are today. This week's guest is filmmaker, actor, writer, comedian, all-around great guy, and friend of IMDb, Kevin Smith. In addition to talking about his picks for the movies that change his life, we also get to talk about finishing the script to his sequel to Mallrats, which is known as Twilight of the Mallrats, his upcoming Netflix reboot of Masters of the Universe, and much more. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to give us a star rating or leave a review uh, or give us a shout on social media using hashtag movies that changed my life. Thanks again. And here is Movies That Changed My Life with Kevin Smith. Kevin, how's it going, buddy? So good, man. I, I I know that's not, you know, you're not supposed to say that in the middle of a pandemic. But like I, you know, I I got to write Twilight of the Mallrats. I'm now going back into Moose Jaws. I finished up uh, Masters of the Universe for Netflix. So I've been trying to stay productive. Also, I was coming off the road because we were touring Jay and Silent Bob reboot for a while. So we were on the road for like four months. So coming home and somebody being like, "Don't leave your house," I was like, "Done and done." Uh, something else you got done, something I've been looking forward to for a very long time when you announced this, uh, Masters of the Universe Revelation oh. coming to Netflix. Uh, oh. Allow me to to just read off this insane cast that you have gotten to work with. I mean, Please do, because sometimes I just look at it in my office to be like, this is these are the yeah. people you go to work with? I've I mean, met all these people at this point. Kevin Conroy, Liam Cunningham, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Mark Hamill, Lena Headey, Phil Lamar, Justin Long, Jason Mewes. Henry Rollins, Alicia Silverstone, Harley Quinn Smith, Tiffany Smith, a good friend of IMDb as well. Chris yeah, Wood, who's going to play He-Man. Uh, I mean, what? I just texted with Chris uh, last <laughs> night. He chat, He was like, how are you doing? And I said, Prince Adam. Um, <laughs> it is uh, It is so wonderful. Like, yep. um, writing process was great. I had fantastic people working with me. Uh, Eric uh, Carrasco, I had Dia. I had Tim, I had Mark Bernardin, my co-host yep. from uh, Fat Man Beyond. Uh, and, you know, we the, the secret ingredient was we had two fantastic bosses. Our boss at Mattel, Rob David, he wrote 
Masters of the Universe stories for DC Comics fairly oh, recently. So he's not only like, you know, the Mattel guy, he's also steeped in the lore and he was the guy that was carrying the torch for a while. Right. So he was our boss on Mattel side. On Netflix side, uh, Teddy is our boss and he like his he said it up front. He goes, "Look, Masters of the Universe, I love Batman, I love Star Wars, but Masters of the Universe was always my number one." He was like, "It means the world to me when I was growing up." I thought it was real and I thought there were stakes and I thought every every episode that Skeletor was going to kill He-Man and he said all I ask is that you treat it that seriously. He's like treat it as seriously as I thought it was when I was watching. He's like these are great colorful characters. It's wonderful IP that nobody's touched in a while. Please. This was bliss and I doubt I'll ever get this as perfect all the stars aligned in this perfect way and we turn this thing into what teddy wanted man it's shakespeare it's game of thrones like it's it's like and it's not like everything you knew about these characters is bs or something right, like right. that like we honor what went before and and our episode our first episode is designed to feel like the next episode if they had kept going in the classic run yeah yeah i mean i used, I used to love loved he-man as a kid it was so weird and like not like anything i'd seen before it, it hit like all these things that i couldn't really explain i mean i mean just skeletor alone like his voice like you don't hear a villain like that really i mean everything about it so i'm really excited that uh not and only they're is, doing it but he's a darth vader level villain yeah like known throughout the world not <laughs> even by people who are like oh i don't know that show but i i've heard the name skeletor and i know he looks like that and people yeah. who don't who've never watched the show know what he-man is and stuff yeah. it, it really cracked and creeped into all over uh in the culture and whatnot and so uh, our version uh plays with that we don't ignore it we're not like you know let's put them in new outfits everyone looks like the way they're supposed to everyone acts the way they're supposed to yeah. and mark was out of the animation game altogether he was like i was done doing voiceovers but then my agent called me and said skeletor and i was like "Ooh, it's it's Kind of the like, you know, I get it's it's as big as the Joker and Luke Skywalker, for heaven's sakes. And he's delicious. He does. Uh, he inflects with Tallulah Bankhead um, quite a bit. So he'll be very rough and then he'll be very broken <laughs> like this. It's so spellbinding and watching him and Lena Headey bounce off one another was was wonderful. We're all Marvel movie fans. And that was our bar. For us internally the writers we were like just we just gotta make it as good as one of those i cannot wait for it i'm very 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 excited uh so let's get into it kevin what are the uh the three movies that changed your life that you want to talk about today what did i say i'm a stoner so i know i texted you said, it <laughs> you said 1990s trust 1990s yes. slacker uh yes. or uh reservoir dogs where do you want to start off with we'll start with uh let me see slacker all right, Slacker came out in 1990. Uh, it is a 7.1 out of 10 with 19,000 ratings on IMDb. It is written and directed by Richard Linklater. And the synopsis is a day in the life of Austin, Texas, as the camera roams from place to place and provides a brief look at the overeducated, the social misfits, the outcasts, and the oddballs. Set the scene, Kevin. Uh, for those that don't know the movie at all, uh, Richard Linklater just gives you a snapshot of where he lives, uh, of his home, adopted hometown. Richard's from Dallas, but this movie's about Austin, Texas. And Richard had made a film prior to that called uh, You Can't Learn to uh, Plow 
by reading a book or something like that. Um, but Slacker was the first. It's impossible to learn to plow by reading books. By reading books. Um, more of an experimental film, although Slacker, very experimental as well. Yes. Slacker had distribution. I see Slacker on my 21st birthday. And Slacker is the defining point between where I was a movie watcher and where I wanted to become a movie maker. Um, it's the first film that I'd seen, you know, in 21 years of watching movies, not counting the baby infant years and stuff, um, where I could conceive of doing that. Seeing Slacker, I describe as uh, viewing it with a mixture of awe and arrogance, all because I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. It was an incredibly original film. No three-act structure, no main characters. It's a day in the life. The main character of the movie is Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. So never that was the awe. But then arrogance, because as I'm watching it, people are laughing all around me. I was one of them. The whole audience was enjoying the hell out of it. And I was, I was seized by this notion, arrogant notion. If they think this is funny, I think I could make a funny movie then. Like suddenly it, it bolstered me with confidence and in two weird ways. One to make me even think, conceive of trying to make a movie myself in this world. And two, uh, it kicked in my, the Jersey chip on my shoulder, a sense of pride, my showmanship, the kid who had done all the talent shows and plays in school suddenly kicked in going like, well, wait a second. Like, you know, if this counts, if, if it doesn't have to have famous people and it doesn't have to like, you know, be shot in 35 millimeter could look like, Hell can look like it was made by kids and that's okay. That opened up the world to me. And, you know, that's with the caveat that Richard Linklater is a legit, amazing director and filmmaker. And he was put on this planet to do that. He's born to be a filmmaker, born to be a director. I'm not, I'm a film fan who carpet bagged in, like who just tried it himself, <laughs> took a moonshot where I was like, this looks fun. Let me try it. I'm an outsider artist. You know how like they show every once in a while, like you go to an art show and like, this is weird. Like this came from some lady who lives in Alabama who like <laughs> has never been out of her hometown, but she painted this amazing New York landscape. I'm that I'm an outsider artist. I'm like, that's that idiot that worked at a convenience store and stuff. And he somehow <laughs> made a movie. I never would have happened. Had I not seen slacker is one of the most empowering films I ever saw. So it's my birthday, August 2nd, 1991. And I'm working at the quick stop. Vinny, uh, I know because he comes in to mop the floors from 9 to 10.30 every night. He was the mop boy. So he's like a kid, eight, 16. He was in high school still, maybe 17. And so Mr. Topper, our boss, paid him to come in, mop the floors, stock the soda and stuff. So I didn't have to leave the register because somebody had to man the register. And we got to talking about David Lynch one day. We discovered we liked the same things. And he was the guy that was way into film, like more seriously than me. So... You know, we read the review for Slacker in the Village Voice by Jay Hoberman, and it sounds like it's it's like a siren's call. Like suddenly, I was like, "We have to go!" Like this, a movie like this is never going to play here, and it's probably not even going to come to our video store. Like this sounds amazing. It has a Madonna Pap smear in it. What is that all about? <laughs> Let's go! So after you know, I worked on my birthday at the stores. Very uneventful day. Then I uh, close up at 1030 as I did every night. And then me and Vinny got in my car and we drove up. So we went and saw Slacker. And the whole time I'm watching that movie, that's all an arrogance fills me. I'm like, I think I could do this. I th And it's, I'm driving home with Vinny 
and we get to the New Jersey Turnpike. Uh, we got out of the Holland Tunnel and we get right to the New Jersey Turnpike where you pick up the ticket and then you pay on the other side when you get to your exit. And just before I took the ticket, I said to Vinny, I think I want to be a filmmaker. And he goes, really? I said, yeah, I think I think so. Like, if that counts as a movie, I think maybe I can make a movie. I don't know if I can make it as good as that, but, like, that didn't have any famous people in it. That's just a dude in Texas, in Nowheresville, Texas, making a movie. He ain't from New York. He ain't from Los Angeles where the movies are made. He's from Nowheresville, Texas. Now, he was from Austin, Texas, which right. is everywheresville, USA. <laughs> but, you know, I was a product of the New Jersey educational system, so my geography wasn't that good. <laughs> So even though my father watched a show every week, he was a big country and Western fan, a show called Austin City Limits on mm -hmm. PBS, it never connected in my head where I'm like, <laughs> oh, Austin, they do things there. They have their right. own programs and stuff. If you were ever going to make a movie in Texas, Austin was going to be the place. That being said, little ignorance will go a long way. So I didn't know that. So I'm going, I'm inspired by that. I'm like, this guy, he's like me. I'm in Jersey, he's in Texas. We're both screwed. We're both far outside the industry. So if he can do it, maybe I could do it and stuff. Like for years, I'd meet people and be like, what you did inspired me. And I quickly tell them, that's what Richard Linklater did, man. He just passed it on and he got it from Cassavetes and who knows where Cassavetes right. got it probably by being frustrated on a movie set by being an actor and like you know what I think I'll be in charge and he come up right. with his own stuff so Slacker was powerful man was a you know if, if I was building an infinity gauntlet it's one of the first <laughs> stones that drops in and I'm like Whoa. Oh, oh yeah, where you get hungry, where you're like, if I get two more stones, I could rule this universe. I rewatched it for, obviously, to prep for this, and it hits so well. Like, uh, my note for it was that, like, it's obviously one of the most influ influential films in the last 30 years, but no one talks about it. Obviously, it was made cheap. It was on, like, what, 16 millimeter, $23,000 budget. Yep. Um, but that opening scene, or the second scene after the uh, the, the airport monologue, where you know the person gets hit by the car and then the guy drives around and then it cranes up and follows him into his apartment or crane i mean who knows what they actually use right, i, I right, was like right. i mean it's amazing like you, like tarantino uses that in you know a couple of years later right and it's like it's it's amazing i guess like that's such praise for days and confused that days and confused was so good and had i mean obviously had so many powerful stars in it right um, that like slacker gets kind of forgotten in the link later. Like, do you, do you know story? why that is? I've got a theory. So yes. my theory is, you know, about clerks because the guy who made it has not stopped talking about it <laughs> since the day he made it. <laughs> I will never let this world while I am above ground. I will say clerks somewhere once a day. So people are like, yes, we know, bro. We know Richard is the other guy. Richard made his movie and he's not the guy who's like, let me tell you all stories about how we got the cat to poop on cue and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Richard's serious about his craft. That shot that you point out, that crane shot alone, yeah. that's the mark of a filmmaker, man. That's, that's why him and like Quentin start hanging out in festivals. They speak the same language. They're both born to be filmmakers and stuff. So from the moment I got into the business, I was always pointing to him. In every article and in every interview, I'm like, I saw Slacker and that made me want to be a movie and stuff. And I make a movie. And I got to meet Richard. Um, he signed my Dazed and Confused soundtrack because we shared a lawyer like early on. <laughs> so it, we went out to dinner, me and Scott and Richard and Ann McVeigh, Ann Walker McVeigh is producer uh -huh. on that movie and stuff. And, you know, he I followed his path. Like he started with Slacker, 
uh, no budget movie made with friends that was eventually distributed by a real distributor. Clerks, same thing. His next movie was Days Confused with Alphaville, the production company at Gramercy. We did the exact same mm. thing. Our producers were his producers, Jim and Sean and stuff. And so I, he really laid track that I put my train on and I've got this Catholic sense of guilt where I'm like, I can't take credit for stuff. I, I, you know, I'm like, I'm a modest or whatever the hell. Right. So <laughs> when it comes to like talking about clerks and people like this is, you know, an enter adjective, wonderful adjective. I would always be like, well, that's cause I saw slacker, man. Have you seen slacker? Right. Let me tell you about slacker. And for 10 years, when I first got into the business, the reaction was always the same. No, what is that movie? No. Yeah. Well, I've never heard of that movie. Dazed. Everyone knows, yeah. man. But like, this is a movie that should be looked at by anyone who is a first-time filmmaker, falling in love with film, a cineast. Richard uh, not only shot 16 millimeter, he also shot Super 8 millimeter in the movie. There's a little breathtaking sequence at the very end where yeah. they tape up the camera and whip it oh off a mountain. God. That's so like good. so incredibly beautiful, experimental. And he also shot using a pixel vision camera, which was an old Fisher price camera that sold for like 7,500, uh, 75 bucks to $100. And you would give to a kid and they could make er movies in the early days of VHS. So it was like a kid's version of VHS and it captured images, but they called it pixel vision had a very specific look to it. Richard shot a whole sequence and they talk about it in the movie where it's like, I got yeah. this pixel vision camera. And then they actually include the footage it. in the movie. That's, it's it's it is so breathtaking cool. in terms of filmmaking, the, and he uh, definitely deserves to be seen by a lot more people. You're right; it's incredibly influential. I just don't yeah. know why more people don't sing its praises. The the other note I had is that he's such a master of movie, like like all the transitions are just one character being passed off to the next and the next and the next. So and it, it takes it, you about three or four uh, scenes to catch to, it. To catch that, it's, and then suddenly you're like, "Oh, this yeah, is the journey we're because, on." Because, like in the beginning, with the guy who uh, he should have stayed at the bus station, he just walks away, and I'm yeah. like, "Wait, where did where, where did that guy go?" And that's that's the maestro himself. That's Linklater, yeah, it's, and it's, Linklater yeah, yeah, right, right. opens his movie by giving himself like the world's longest monologue. <laughs> Do you ever have those dreams that are just completely real? I mean, they're so vivid. It's just like completely real. It's like. There's always something bizarre going on in those. I have one about every two years or something. I always remember them really good. It's like there's always someone getting run over or something really weird. Um, one time I had lunch with Tolstoy. Another time I was a roadie for Frank Zappa. Anyway. That's, you know, that's asking, like, th then you can ask your actors to do anything. Because you're like, did you see that uncut take of me? Yeah. In the taxi, saying all that stuff. And he's really wonderful. It's, I always think it was a shame that he didn't act more. Because he's so... Good, good and he sounds so sweet. He's got that slight draw, that Dallas yeah. draw, uh, where he's just like, maybe if I, maybe a version of me is still sitting at the bus station right now. <laughs> so good. That that movie only gives me like obviously good feelings and warm memories. Right. Uh, so the last question here: Do you have a favorite character um, of do you have, or a favorite sequence? One of my favorites, though, or the scene that like probably made the most impact and it's very brief and, and blink and you miss it or, or turn your head and you won't hear it. But they're talking about Scooby-Doo and Krishna. Yeah. That conversation. I mean, that's, that's my bread and butter, like yeah. dissecting pop culture. There are two places I heard pop culture dissected that gave me the keys to unlock my world. One of them was slacker. 
The other is the third movie that we'll talk about. Sweet. Uh, well, perfect. So before we get to that third movie, let's go in chronological order. And uh, we already talked about this a little bit. Uh, the second movie on your list was 1990's Trust. Uh, this is a 7.4 mm. out of 10 on IMDb. 8,000 ratings, written and directed by Hal Hartley, uh, starring Adrian Shelley, Martin Donovan, Edie Falco. Um, I had never even heard of this movie, and I was completely floored. It, it was such an oddly beautiful film about these two people, uh, Adrian Shelley and Martin Donovan. They kind of meet in a weird point in their lives. They're not really sure who they are, what they want to do in the next phase. They have a weird relationship with their families, and like the way they connect uh, over the course of the movie, it, it was amazing. Uh, and then like this is from 1990, Slacker is from 1990. They could not be two different movies, like stylistically. Like Slack, like Trust looks like a like a film film. There's a lot of the really beautiful stuff with lights and and uh, um, you know lighting and the colors and the costume design. And then Slacker is obviously like the complete polar opposite. Um, so I'm I'm curious, like like you know you said you saw the trailers at the same time, but how did how did Trust hit you? Like when did you end up seeing that? All that sorts of stuff. The Trust trailer um, played out. Um like most 90s early 90s indie film trailers and uh so it was dialogue heavy because if if you were a 90s indie film and you didn't have a gun in it you probably had (laughs) characters talking to each other so all of these trailers hats off to folks who had to cut the trailers back then all of those trailers had to be cut from movies that didn't have any trailer moments you know what i'm saying there's no sizzle like Mm -hmm. of like how do you how do you make this sexy? It's not like we're cut away to the shot of Thor, you know, coming to Wakanda <laughs> or something like that. So you're having to just cut conversations and generally one shot conversations into something that's going to entice an audience. And that trailer was just cut in just such a way where I was like, oh, they're all talking in a weird way. I liked how the delivery was kind of, uh, I mean, this is going to sound negative, but there, there was a stiltedness to it. There, it was a... And that's not the word. It was performance based. Mm-hmm. It was surreal. Like it wasn't, it was hyper real. And if you look at Slacker, Slacker is the movie that makes me go, oh my God, I could pick up a camera and do something too. But I don't make a movie like Slacker. The movie I make is closer to trust, although it's not trust at all. But like it's a dialogue heavy movie where mm-hmm. all people do is talk to each other in a heightened, almost stilted way um that's the gift that i got from hal hartley and trust number one i just love that movie the late adrian shelley um who went on to be a filmmaker herself waitress yeah waitress um so adrian shelley was uh transcendent intoxicated Uh, like every second she's on the screen you can't look away she she's like and Martin Donovan is amazing, right? But Martin Adrian Donovan, who most cats like, you know, they've come to know in more recent years. Like, right. I, I saw him pop up in Ant Man at one point. And I <laughs> right. was so delighted because I yeah. was like, "That's my boy." I've been I've been honoring his work forever. But I think he's been on some big TV shows as well. Yeah. I'm not. I can't remember. So I, this was the first movie I see him in, and he's absolute magic. And the two of them together are these broken individuals that have a romanceless romance. Yes. Um, th- this isn't about like these two characters are going to have sex and what happens next. They are so uniquely made for each other, but not in that way. They need each other more than they need to have sex with each other. Um, it's, it's about um, abuse as well. Yeah. Like the relationship with his father is yeah. crazy. So, like it's, it's kind of um, poetically presented 
Yes. But at the end of the day, it, this is a kid who's been slapped around, beaten by his father, like most of his life. And he's clearly brilliant, but it's, he's, it's created an esteem issue. And I always looked at that movie as like, that's maybe the closest character to Hal Hartley that he ever hmm. wrote. I think Hal Hartley might, might have been that guy, at least when he made trust. Some of us make these movies to stop being those people. So you take all your demons and you stick them in a character and then you go on with your life. So it could been that maybe he was nihilistic back then. I doubt he is that way now. But one of the like coolest things about the character that you know to easily to relate and they put it in the trailer was that he carried around a grenade. <laughs> right. And she's like, "Why?" And he's like, "I don't know, just in case." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, and then also a young Edie Falco Ugh. who would go on to be in The Sopranos, of right. course, be the queen of The Sopranos. But she had this impeccable older sister delivery. She was so. F- real in that movie like honestly you know i've seen many movies at that point in my life and most of the time you're like these fuckers are acting they're chewing the scenery and stuff like right. that i know it's a performance she came off so incredibly real i'm like i think i've met her in jersey like that's that's a real human being so she was a discovery as well um but it for me what really played was that as you've seen is a and heard more importantly a dialogue heavy movie, but the dialogue is not naturalistic at no, all. It's at all. heightened. So you, <laughs> you have to have an ear for that or even appreciation for that. And I think that's why most people don't know trust. Number one, smaller movie that came out in the nineties. I think fine line released it, if I remember correctly. And that was before fine line had been new line were bought uh-huh. by Warner brothers. So they were still kind of an indie shop and stuff. But um, also like, it's a kind of movie that in the first 10 minutes, if you if if you don't like it has it feels very art school to some yes, degree. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. The the composition where people are looking, um, it's it's artic, artistic as hell, uh, but it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea in terms of how dialogue plays out. Yeah. So if you like the same way that I love everything that David Mamet does, mm-hmm. um, and some people have liked. A lot. Some things David Mamet did. David Mamet wrote the screenplay to The Untouchables, and that movie made a lot of money and obviously played for a wide audience. But, you know, if you ask people, like, have you ever seen House of Games? They're like, mm. have you ever seen uh, The Spanish Prisoner, The Winslow Boy? Like, he makes movies where, of course, his characters deliver a very specific patois, and I've definitely cribbed from him as well. But he just unforgivingly makes movies where his characters talk like his characters. And the biggest criticism you could ever make of the guy is all of his characters sound like him, which is a criticism I've received many times in my career. But I always saw that as a badge of honor because the moment I hear dialogue uh, from David Mamet, I know it's David Mamet dialogue. And the moment I hear Hal Hartley dialogue, I know it's Hal Hartley dialogue. And that's like, as an artist, that's what you want people to right. recognize your work. I guess some artists want to disappear and let the work speak for itself. But I've, you know, the painter winds up in the painting. The, the clarinetist winds up in the performance as well. Like the director winds up in there as well. The screenwriter particularly. There is, um, <clears throat> speaking of the dialogue, I actually wrote down a lot of notes on that. Uh, the football player monologue when uh, Adrian Chell's character is breaking up with them and he just keeps rattling off and he ends, and then I drink this mixture of one raw egg and then it sort of like fades out. And um, when Matthew, uh, Martin Donovan's character, goes into the bar, he punches the two guys who have wronged Adrian Shelley unknowingly earlier that day and he goes to the bartender, he goes, put in the tape and get me a bottle of scotch. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's, it's so, so over the top, but so his, good. His character um, wound up 
in the DNA of a lot of my characters, like mm. Randall from Clerks, Brody from Mallrats, definitely, definitely Brody. inspired <laughs> by his performance. Uh, yeah. Banky, Jason Lee, and Chasing Amy, like the guy who just does not give a shit, and will also physically just punch a person, like <laughs> as if that was okay or normal. Um, yeah, his character, his del- his performance, his delivery, his character, insanely unique. Uh, and wonderful and it always frustrated me that he didn't have a bigger career yeah. now he does now yes. he has the career i felt that martin donovan should have had the moment after trust because i'm like this guy's the absolute truth yeah uh and then my last note here I-, I thought the parent relationships we talked about this a little bit earlier are so so interesting like um you know you're introduced to uh Mar- matthew's dad and he's mm-hmm. obviously abusive to him but then you later you get this really brutal scene where uh, you know, the dad goes to bring, like, he, like, breaks his TV to go bring it to see his son who had moved out. And he's like, he fired. Like, Matthew's a genius. And you're like, man, just, like, say that to your son. Say it to his face, bro. It's heartbreaking because you're like, well, if that's the way you feel about him, why are you? Yeah. I just watched this morning when I woke up early. So I wound up going, like, let me let me watch something I've seen um, that, that I, but I haven't seen in a while. And I did enjoy it. And I went looking. I saw I, Tanya. Mm. Oh, so God. I was like, I'm going to roll I, Tanya, this morning. Such a wonderful flick. So uh, good. I mean, wonderful in as much as it's about harrowing horrible things and, and right, evil right. people and stuff. But her mother's performance in that yeah. movie, like, hands down, perhaps one of the worst cinematic mothers of all time. Matthew's dad in Trust, right there yeah. with her. Same type of sensibility. I'm going to abuse the hell out of you because it'll make you a champion. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, any last things on, on trust other than people need to go watch this so there's more than 8,000 ratings? Come on, on IMDb. we got to get some more. Trust um, was the second How Hartley movie to get a distributor. The first one also shared Adrian Shelley as mm-hmm. a cast member. It's called The Unbelievable Truth. So um, it, it was followed up by Simple Men. Three wonderful How Hartley movies that you could check out. Um, if you love dialogue, this these movies are like porn if you love dialogue. However, it's not the standard missionary position porn. <laughs> this is one of those three pages in deep cuts category where you're like, they have a category for that? And yes, they do. It is so specific and it's Hal Hartley. Um, it, it's definitely worth your time. Start with trust. And if you like that, go back throughout the catalog, backwards and forwards. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch 
Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Awesome. Uh, all right, so let's get to your third movie here. Can I tell you a quick Hal Hartley story? Yes, please do. It's heartbreaking. Yes. So uh, at the beginning of my career, as much as I'm out there talking about Richard Linklater, I do the same thing about Hal Hartley. In my end credits of Clerks, I thank Hal Hartley, Richard Linklater, um, Jim Jarmusch, and Spike mm. Lee for leading the way. I put their names in this. And thank you for leading the way. Um, Ileana Douglas, at one point, she was in- involved with Martin Scorsese. And her and I were friends. She's in Chasing Amy. And she was like, I was there with Marty the night he watched Clerks for the first time. And I was like, what? Martin Scorsese watched Clerks? She's like, yeah, everybody was talking about it. He watches a lot of films. So he figured he had to keep his finger on the pulse. And he watched the movie. And I was like, what did he say? And she goes, well, at the end of the movie, I'll tell you the thing that made me laugh. She goes, at the end of the movie, he's read that like me going, uh, you know, thank you to Richard Linklater, Hal Hartley, Jim Jarmusch, and Spike Lee for leading the way. And he said out loud, oh, they led the way. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> love that story. So in any event, um, I was constantly talking about the filmmakers who inspired me, those four particularly. Um, but Richard, of course, got referenced in every damn interview because without him, people are like, how'd you get here? And I'm like, I saw a movie called Slacker. Then I would sing Hal Hartley's praises. So I was on record as being like a big Hal Hartley fanboy. Before my career kicked in, before I tried to make clerks, I went to a screening um, at the the PAP, the Joe PAP in New York, mm-hmm. um, and brought, what was it? My, uh, my trust laser disc, not a DVD, a laser disc, <laughs> um, to a screening of The Unbelievable Truth. So he did a brief intro, and then he went to leave, and then I chased out because I had my laser disc. I was, Mr. Hartley, can you sign this? And he said, oh, yeah. And he seemed like that's not a thing that ever happens to me. And he just wrote how. And I remember going like, hurry up, man. The movie's starting. And then, you know, he signed it and I, I went away. So years later, I'm this guy. I made clerks. I'm, I'm a filmmaker now. I'm in the club, so to speak. I'm out there doing press like and dropping names like Richard Linklater, Hal Harley. These are the masters you have to watch. There's an, I think it's 1995, maybe 96. It's a New York Times piece. I think it was a New York Times magazine piece. In any event, it's a profile of Hal Hartley. And I have a trust poster, the Spanish trust poster on my framed on my bedroom <laughs> wall, not my office wall, my bedroom wall. That's how much I love trust. Yeah. So in the piece, the journalist details an incident at a screening. I don't know if it was Berlin Film Festival, some big film festival. But Hal's doing a Q&A and somebody asked him like, how does it feel to be name checked in clerks? And what they wrote in the New York Times was like um, the answer that Hartley, that Hal Hartley then gave was so vitriolic he had to go lay down after the screening. <laughs> Broke my heart, took my trust poster down. That was that. You know, but it didn't oh, change your it's... relationship with the movie. It did, but you know, it did. And I have, and, and I love talking about it today yeah. because I haven't watched it in 20 years. Oh, like I haven't watched it since then. So, or more than 20 years. So I might give it a spin tonight, man. Like yeah. based on this conversation, cause it is a big part of my DNA, man. And, and I watched that movie so many times, so many times. <laughs> 
I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Movies That Changed My Life. If you are, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to make sure that you get all of our new episodes as soon as they are available. Because trust me, you won't want to miss the incredible guests we have coming on to nerd out about some of their favorite movies like Judy Greer, Tatiana Maslany, uh, and Chelsea Handler, just to name a few. So thanks again for listening. Be sure to check out imdb.com slash podcasts for more content. Now let's get back to Movies That Changed My Life with Kevin Smith. A couple days ago on Instagram, you uh, revealed you had finished, what, V1 of Twilight of the Mall Rats? Or what, what version is that? This one is uh, the first draft of Twilight of the Mall Rats, but it's the second Mall Rats sequel script that I've written. There was one I wrote years ago uh, called Mall Rats 2 Die Hard in a Mall. And uh, <laughs> most of that wound up becoming Jay and Silent Bob reboot. The whole third act of Jay and Silent Bob reboot was the old third act of mall rats too and you know terrorists uh they took over the mall instead of the chronicon in, as in jane and bob reboot in jane and bob reboot they were russian terrorists but in right. mall rats too they were canadian terrorists taking over the mall and brody was forced into this like john mcclain type position so and you know it's fun but like i would look at it and be like this like if you were a fan of mall rats and 25 years later, somebody was like, they're doing it again. You're like, oh, my God, what would that be like? And you walked in and it was diehard. You might be like, well, why why call it Mallrats? Just call it right. something else and start from scratch. So the second version of Mallrats, like I had to leave the other one behind because I hacked it up for parts for reboot. So Twilight of the Mallrats, which I started writing in December, late December, December 28th, and then just finished up last week, it more closely resembles what the world knows mall rats to be a day in the life at this shopping center. So the the whole movie is set against the backdrop of like this dying behemoth that only Brody wants to save. So, and everybody <laughs> who was on the poster uh, comes back. Uh, somebody's I, I'd written the other day online, I guess in my Instagram thing mm-hmm. or, or answered some questions about who was coming back. And I hadn't said Shannon Hamilton and people were like, he didn't say him, but he's in the script too. Um, so it, it, I, I wrote everybody, everybody nice. gets to kind of come back and play. So I like what it is. It's, it is uh, very in keeping with what I do. And at the same time, it's, it's very uh, current as well. Um, yeah. And it also shares like the DNA uh, part of the DNA of Jane Silent Bob reboot Mm. uh being mall rats too uh, we saw jay and his daughter you know gallivanting in that movie and in mall rats twilight of the mall rats it brody's daughter is a big factor band and we referenced her in like the cut scenes at the end of jane silent bob reboot right so it's a multi-generational tale and stuff like that but it turned out wonderful man there are like the you know we can't ever have a stan lee scene again because sadly stan is not with us sure but the what subs for the Stan Lee scene in this version uh, is heartbreakingly beautiful, um, and then and it's very funny as well. So I, I had a blast writing it. That's why, I like you know, I, once again, I can't complain too much about the quarantine. I got something done. All right, so let's go to uh, your last pick here. This is 1992's Reservoir Dogs, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Eight point three out of ten on IMDb. Eight hundred eighty thousand ratings. Um, I mean, just go. I know you. This wanna. is this is the beginning <laughs> of it all. Like you know, look, Quentin Tarantino is a 
if there's a Mount Rushmore of American filmmakers or even world filmmakers, Quentin's face is up there. We all know this. So this is how he begins. Quentin begins with Reservoir Dogs. And Reservoir Dogs, before I saw it as a movie, I saw it as a script, a bootleg Mm. script that I bought at a Fred Greenberg uh, comic book show at the the uh, Penta Hotel, the Penta Hotel, right across the street from uh, from um, Madison Square Garden, I think it was, back in the day. I don't even know if it's there anymore. So uh, he used to have big comic book shows, and they call them conventions, but it was, it's not like San Diego. But sure. it was bigger than a comic book show. It wasn't like six tables in a room. They took a couple ballrooms out in New York, and they would do the show quarterly or something like that. I see this title, Catches My Eye. It's written on the binder. Uh, the script, you know, how people write that used to write on the binder of scripts uh, long ago when we printed actual script. Right. So I see Reservoir Dogs and I'm like, what a weird combination of words. Pick it up. What a weird name that wrote it. Quentin Tarantino. You got to <laughs> remember, we don't have the internet yet. Right. So it's not like, oh, I've read about it. he's buzzy or something like that. Even if I was going to read about him, it would be in Premiere Magazine and that was a monthly or something like that. So right. at this point, I buy the script because I was look. I had a Silence of the Lamb script that I bought because I love that book. And they were like, they're making that as a movie. So I bought the script. And so I bought the Reservoir Dogs script too. Went home, started reading it. Read like a comic book. Read mm-hmm. like a mammoth film. Read like a Gregory McDonald Flinch novel. It was masterful when it came to the written word. And I don't mean the written word about like the descriptive passages of what was going on in the scene. Anytime a character opened their mouths, it was spellbinding. You were hooked. It was a page turner. It was fun, brisk, exciting, shocking, violent, like crazy. Um, I love the script. Me and Vinny go see the movie when the movie comes out. So I go see Reservoir Dogs with Vinny and the opening scene in Reservoir Dogs changes my life in as much as his characters who are, you know, we we know from the trailer and, and the reviews going in, it's a bank heist movie. So these guys are toughs. They're heavies. They're all having a conversation about Madonna's Like a Virgin song and a very incongruous conversation for people to be having, particularly adults like these guys. For like 15 and minutes even, right? I mean, that's a long, that's a long scene. Yeah. Spellbinding. Yeah. It just goes on and on and like ropes you in. It's funny and it's funny, be, uh, like not just the delivery, but the idea of like, why are f***ing like six, seven grown men talking about this song so seriously? They're giving the song serious consideration. Even though the movie is not about pop culture, it acknowledges pop culture the same way me and my friends do. And I remember seeing that and being like, that that was the pathway to Clerks. Because I was like, if you can sit around in a movie and talk about shit ain't happening in the movie, like talk about shit that really happened in real life, like Madonna literally put a song out called Like a Virgin, and it is kind of weird. If you could do that <laughs> about songs, you could totally do that about films as well. And me and my friends, we break these movies down all the time. Like me and, uh, me and, and Brian Johnson would talk about uh, Planet of the Apes. Me and Walter would talk about Planet of the Apes. Me and Scott would break down Star Wars all the time. You know, So suddenly you're seeing somebody give you license to do something that you normally do, but do it in a movie. Do it for a living if you can. So Reservoir Dogs changes everything. I mean, not only that opening scene, but like, think about it. He had Marvel comics references. He talks about like the, the guys like, you know Ben Grimm? The Thing. Love it looks like The Thing. Like, there's a poster on the wall in the room. I forget who it is. I don't know if it's The Thing, but it's a comic book poster behind Tim Roth. 
And it was like, clearly this guy was one of us. He liked the same stuff I liked. And he wasn't embarrassed or ashamed to reference Ben Grimm and the thing. He didn't care if the whole world didn't understand that. Like if your mom had to turn to you and be like, what, what is that? Ben Grimm and the thing. And mom, that's the, th- you know, the rock guy from the Fantastic Four. Shh, and back to the movie. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was everything to me. I'm like, this guy as an artist. He don't care. And he's an artist who's repurposing art. He's an artist who's not afraid to reference other art. And, you know, that's certainly Quentin's entire career. An artist who is unafraid, unabashedly uh, refers to other art, but then makes it very uniquely his own. So seeing that movie was a complete eye-opener for me as uh, somebody who would write dialogue, particularly as the guy who would write the Death Star scene, you know, the Death Star (laughs) contractor scene in Star Wars. I don't get to that unless Quentin has the the his gang of uh, of of colors Mr. Purple, Mr. Black, Mr. Pink um do uh go on a heist and have a conversation about Madonna and her music and stuff. That opened up the world to me. It gave me license to do what I thought would be entertaining cuz that's what it is. It's not going like, "Hey, this works in a movie" because when that movie came out, it like it did well, but it made like a million bucks. It wasn't like mm-hmm. it didn't crack the world into Pulp Fiction cracked the world in two and stuff. So, you know, as you're seeing it displayed by, this, like, this guy's got guts. Like, that's a good idea, man. Like, I, like fuck, I'm not going to be afraid to talk about comic books. I'm going to reference comic books, and I'm going to reference other movies. I'm gonna, And I'm writing a whole Star Wars monologue. And anytime somebody read it and they were like, are you allowed to talk about, like, Star Wars in a movie? I was like, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino talked about Madonna in a movie man and he got another movie made off of it so hell yeah i'm going to talk about what i want to talk about he gave me creative license now you look at all three of these filmmakers and they did not give me uh obviously uh visual style or skill that's not what i took from them i I wasn't like i'm gonna be as good as them at their job i took from richard the the low budget diy what are you waiting for go make a movie that's what i got from richard from hal hartley i got you don't have to write real dialogue. You can write dialogue that entertains you, man. You could show off with your dialogue writing and stuff. And then from Quentin, I got pop culture is absolute fair game because we all live in the same world. And for years, movies didn't reference other movies for some reason, man. They didn't even do it on TV. It always like weirded me out. I remember one episode of, um, what was it? Facts of Life, where they were all graduating. And at one point, Joe is like, well, it's not like we're never going to see each other. We're going to see the new Star Wars movie together. And that was before Return of the Jedi came out. And I was like, the girls from Eastland have heard of Star Wars? Like, but of course they have. (laughs) And now we live in a world where, like, you know, Spider-Man swings around giant man's legs and references a movie. You know, Empire Strikes Back. Right. Now we live in a world where Stan Lee in Captain Marvel references a movie that he was in that referenced his whole career. It's so damn meta. You could trace that all back to Quentin. Quentin, I think, honestly, was the first one out there going like, pop culture is culture. Like, if this is the culture you grew up with, he's not going to pretend to talk about, uh, you know, sculpted art or bas reliefs or something like that or the Impressionist period. He's going to talk about the art that he found in life. And let me tell you something. That dude is gifted not only at making movies, but finding gold in absolute cheese. He'll find movies that nobody likes and completely dismisses. And he can tell you why they're important and what's so good about them. It's thrilling to have a conversation with him about film. As much as you think, 
ah, we're all movie fans. We love having movies. That is the grand dame. He has yeah. forgotten more than we'll ever know about it, and he could do it for hours. The through line I see of these three films, that they're all written and directed by one person, which is obviously something you went on to do as a filmmaker as well. True. Yeah. Um, obviously all you know, dialogue heavy. Uh, they all sort of break the mold in what they want to do. Is there any other through line you saw between these three movies that you think really like is, is there was a hook for all of them? Their willingness to tell a story where they're like, this is for me. Um, even though they got you know way better at the job and learned how to please themselves and the audience as well. And I'm still in the mindset of like, well, I hope they like this, but this is for me. I do just want to say, I mean, we've, we've met a good amount of times. We've done interviews together. So I love hearing how, what you say about these movies because I saw Mall Rats and Silent Bob before I saw Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And when I saw those movies when I was a kid, I thought the exact same thing. I was like, man... Like there are people out there making movies, and I, obviously I'm not a filmmaker. I just love movies. Uh, but you know, when I saw those, I was like, "There's a guy out there making these movies about comic books and Star Wars, and like making this funny dialogue." Uh, and that was like wildly influential and helped me like on my course, uh, you know, to eventually do a podcast like this where I get to talk about movies with other filmmakers or with filmmakers. Sorry. Uh, so you know, I haven't had a chance to say it to you, but I feel like this is a good time to say that. I mean, it's deeply. Uh, you know, th- those movies, Dogma, were wildly impactful when I was a kid. So it's very you cool are, to see you had very similar reactions to these other these other movies. You are incredible for saying that. Thank you, number one. But now you know the path. We got <laughs> we got to my stuff through those three guys. So it, it, it's um, I, I'm delighted to hear that. Like as you watch them, you had like you know, Reservoir Dogs is the easy one. Everyone remembers right, that. It's right, classic, right. and we all know it and love it and stuff. But it's nice that you kind of fell down the rabbit hole with two movies that are like, to me, absolute lost treasures and stuff um, and movies that are important building blocks in, in my creative DNA. If you like my stuff at all, or conversely, if you hate my stuff, <laughs> now you know who to blame. There are three filmmakers <laughs> that you can call them up on the carpet. Richard Linklater, Quentin Tarantino, and Hal Hartley. And two of them have been very nice to me my whole life. So, <laughs> Kevin. Thank you so much. This was a ton of fun. Ian, absolute pleasure. I look forward to seeing you again in real life when we get to yes. reconvene. It's obviously not going to be San Diego this year. Now we got our fingers crossed for Sundance next year. Yeah, <laughs> Ho- hopefully we get that. Uh, I know. I love love getting to nerd out with you. It's a ton of fun. Um, anything else? Just keep up. Looking forward to all the work you have coming through and hopefully check you out on Instagram and Twitter to catch any new updates you have on uh, all the work you're doing. Thank you, my friend. Or join me at thatkevinsmithclub.com. But before I get out of here, man, uh, what you just heard was the DNA of what got an idiot, a chimp, to a position in life where he has his own Twitter account and Instagram and he's made a few movies. Um, That's the roadmap, kids. It was one that worked for me. Try those three movies out and see if that's your roadmap. See if that's what unlocks, you know, uh, the... The key that unlocks the inside that kind of makes you go, oh, I can do this stuff too. That's it. Seeing those movies just kind of empowered me enough with enough uh, what they call um, uh, reasonable unreasonability for me to go like, well, I know not everyone makes a movie, but these guys did, so I'm going to try it too. So give those flicks a watch, see if it works for you. Go make a movie, movie makers. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information on Kevin and his picks, head over to imdb.com slash podcasts. 